Lord willing, I'm going to be with you uh, three times over the next couple of months. And in those three times, uh, I want to kind of do a little mini-series with you. We're going to look at gospel scenes in the Old Testament. Gospel scenes in the Old Testament. So I want to show you kind of three Old Testament texts that I think present this clear and compelling picture of the gospel message uh, found here in the scriptures. Uh, The text I'm going to preach from, uh, today I'm going to look at Genesis 15. Next time, uh, Lord willing, we'll look at Leviticus 16 and then Zechariah chapter 3. Um, I don't know about you, but, but in the churches I grew up in and the sermons that I grew up hearing, these were texts that were rarely, very rarely addressed. And so anytime I get to teach and preach from the Old Testament, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile thing to do. So if you have your Bible, Genesis chapter 15 this morning, I believe it's there in your, your bulletin as well. Genesis chapter 15, we're going to read the whole thing, and then we will jump in and start moving through. So Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark... Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. For those of you who are uh, taking notes, um, big idea for this morning. God keeps his promises. 
God keeps his promises. And we're going to unpack that big idea in three main points. I'll give them to you right now if you want to write them down. Point number one, we're going to look at the promise of God. The promise of God, that'll be in verses 1 through 5. Point number two, the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham, and there we'll look at verse 6. And then point number three, the promise guaranteed. The promise guaranteed. We'll look at verses 7 through 21. The promise of God, the faith of Abraham, and that promise guaranteed. Now, as we begin, it's vital that we address uh, the context here because this story that we just read is not the beginning of Abraham's story. Abraham's story starts back in Genesis chapter 12. He is called by God to leave his country, his father's house, his kindred land, and he's told to go somewhere that God will explain later. God says, go from your house to a country that one day I will show you. Now, before this time, we are told later on in the Bible that Abram is somebody who worships pagan gods. He's not a follower of this God. He's not a follower of Yahweh. He worships these gods beyond the river, the text says. And yet, God calls this man and tells him to leave everything. And in doing so, he also gives Abram this promise. His promise is threefold. He tells Abram that he'll give him his own land. He tells him that he will have innumerable descendants. And he says that the entire world will be blessed through Abram. That's threefold promise. It's a huge promise, and it's particularly striking that these three things would be promised to this guy. Because at this point in time, Abram has precisely no land. He's just a nomadic traveler. He has no children, and he's very, very old, where he's not going to have any children. And he's got nothing with which to bless the world, to bless the nations. He's got no descendants, he's got no land, he's got no money. So these three promises that are given to Abraham seem to cut right to the heart of what he can never be. But God always keeps his promises. Now that brings us here to our first point, number one, the promise of God. The promise of God. So if you look down at your Bible there, Genesis 15, the very first words of Genesis 15, after these things, right, referring back to previous stories. So this little phrase here, after these things, refers back to chapter 14. Chapter 14 in Genesis tells of a story of a battle. Abram has traveled now for a little bit uh, following the call of God, and he's come to what's going to be later known as the land of Canaan. And in Canaan, the way that Canaan sort of split up at the time is there's tons and tons of these small kings. These kings that rule over tiny little pieces of land and tiny little armies. And there's these little skirmishes going on all the time throughout Canaan between these little kings. So one of these skirmishes takes place. It's these four, this group of four kings. They fight against this group of five kings. It's this battle. And the four kings win. Right? Underdog upset. As they win there's some spoil taken from the battle. Right? When you win a war, you, you take stuff from the other side. Part of the spoil that comes in this battle is a man named Lot. Lot. Lot is Abram's nephew. And he's taken captive by this winning side of this battle. So Abram hears of it, and he says, absolutely not. So he gathers his guys. Abram's got 318 men who fight with him. 
And he goes into uh, this place where the kings have Lot. He battles, he wins, he rescues his nephew Lot. Great job, Abram. Now, at the end of this battle, one of the kings comes to Abram and says, Hey, listen, here's all the spoil from the war that you've won. Here's all the stuff that now belongs to you. And Abram says, I don't want any of your stuff. You see, I don't know if you've been in this kind of situation before where um, somebody gives you something, right? And you say, oh my gosh, thank you so much for this gift. And then later, you realize that actually it was not a gift. It was more like uh, something that they're going to use like as a bargaining chip over you. Where they'll say, hey, remember, I did that thing for you. Now you kind of owe me. Right? You need to do this thing for me. And you say, wait a minute, I thought that was a gift. I didn't know there were strings attached to that. That's the situation that Abraham is trying to avoid here. The king of Sodom comes to Abram and says, hey, here's all your stuff. Abram says, no, 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 I don't want any of your things because I don't want you to have this hold over me. This guy's a wicked guy. He's not a follower of Yahweh, and so Abram denies him. Now, the point of all this, the reason we include all this story, is what happens in verse 1 of chapter 15. Notice what God says to Abram. Fear not. I am your shield your reward shall be very great. Right? Here's the deal. If you're Abram, these kings don't just go away after this one battle. Odds are, these guys are are going to be coming back. They're going to be coming after you. So surely, after this battle, there's this this sense of fear for Abram. What if they come back? What What if I'm not prepared? And so God says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Not to mention, Abraham has just denied what was probably a significant dollar amount from the king of Sodom. So he's missed out on this massive sense of wealth and resources. He lacks protection, and yet God comes and speaks directly into his situation. I am your shield and your reward. Your reward shall be very great. See, this is what God promises his children. So often, we mistake the promises of God to be things that God can give us. Possessions, or wealth, or protection, or safety. We mistake those things as if those are the things that God has guaranteed to us as his children. No, material possessions... The things that you can control for yourself, those are not the things that God promises us. God has not promised us safety. He's not promised us physical health. He's not promised us wealth and resource. No, what God promises is himself. He is our reward. He is our treasure. And in having him, we have more than we could ever need. We have more than we could ever need in wealth or resource or health or protection or safety. We have the one who created all of those things. God himself is our reward. I'd encourage you this week, take some time and and perhaps examine yourself in this regard. Have you fallen for the trap that the gifts that God gives are the things to be treasured instead of God himself? Do you pray for things that God can give and yet not longing for God himself? 
If you treasure the gift instead of the giver, you will find yourself on this hamster wheel of disappointment. Because the things that God gives are never meant to satisfy. Only God as the giver is meant to satisfy. He is our reward. Now, how does Abram respond here? If you look down at verse 2 and following, Abraham expresses a little bit of doubt here. God says, I I will be your protector. I will be your reward. And even though God has promised that, Abram's still got this problem. What about my heir? What about the person who's going to take over all this when I die? Abram feels this is probably going to be a close day. He's already near 100 years old. And as we've said before, Abram has no children. He's very old. His wife is very old. And throughout their life, they've been unable to have any children. Abram says, you've promised this innumerable descendants, and I can't have one descendant. This guy, Eliezer, is going to be my heir. He's he's likely the, the steward or manager of Abraham's household. And so at this point in time, if you didn't have any kids, the guy who runs your household would be the guy who takes over after you, after you die. And so that's what's going on here. Abram says, this promise you've given doesn't seem to be coming to pass. Now, if you remember, the promise has already been given, right? Genesis 12, you're, you're going to have this land, these children, you're going to be this blessing. And yet Abraham is still waiting. And as he waits doubt begins to rise. You've probably been in a situation like this before where you are, you are in a situation where, where patience is required, where you're waiting on the Lord, and as you wait, it gets harder and harder and harder to believe and to trust that what God has promised will come to pass. Abram here is waiting. And I love this part of the passage. Abram says here, I continue childless. Like, what are you going to do for me in regard to this promise? And notice God's response. He says, no, 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 this man is not the heir. Your own son will be the heir because I promised it. I told you you would have innumerable descendants. And if that simple kind of reconfirmation weren't enough, God moves from uh, just just telling, now he's going to show Abram. He takes him out into the night sky. He says, look at the stars so shall your offspring be. If you are here this morning and you find yourself, just like I I do all the time, experiencing uh, doubt that God will be and do what he has promised, let this part of the passage comfort you. Go to God with your doubts. Be not afraid of God in the moments of doubt. He is the place to run to. Notice here, he doesn't doesn't scold Abraham. Like, how dare you question me? I promised. Just get in line. No, he responds gently to Abraham. I told you you would have an heir. Your own son will be your heir. And I'll show it to you. Look at the stars. So shall your descendants be. Go to God with your doubts. Express them in prayer. Share them with this community. Let the people of God and the word of God lead you to the faithful character of God. Go to God with your doubts. What this is, in this part of the passage, this is a call to trust. God is calling for Abram to trust him. I've promised you these things. 
do you trust me? Do you trust me? That moves us to our second point here. The faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham. Let's look at verse 6 here, Genesis 15. After God shows Abram the stars in the sky, verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the deal. The promises of God can only be accessed through faith. The righteousness of God can only be accessed through faith. Faith is what grants Abraham access to these promises. Now, very briefly here, if you have a Bible, or if you have a phone with a Bible on it, will you flip forward to Romans chapter 4? Romans chapter 4. The reason I want to go here is because Paul in Romans 4 gives us a commentary on this scene in Abram's life. Paul hearkens back to this story, and he explains to us that if faith is the thing that gives us access to God's promise, then it's really, really important that we know exactly what kind of faith we're talking about. And so Paul details for us this faith that Abraham has here. So what I want to do is just really briefly, two markers of Abram's faith that we ought to emulate here to access the promises of God. Two marks of saving faith that emerge from Romans chapter 4. Number one, Abram's faith is realistic. Abram's faith is realistic. So if you're in Romans chapter 4, this is Paul's commentary on Abram. Let's look at verse 19. Paul says this about Abram. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah, his wife's womb. Faith, that is as counted as righteousness, faith is not this blind leap or this, this wild belief in something we know is not true. It's not blind. It's not crazy. No, faith is realistic, right? The text says here that Abraham considers his own body. He's almost 100 years old. Well, I don't see anybody near 100 years old in here, but you can imagine what it would be like to have a body that's 100 years old. It's not a body capable of producing children. Abraham considers his own body as good as dead. He looks to his wife, who for the last 90 years of her life has been able to, unable to have children. He looks at these circumstances seriously, and they make it seem impossible that the promise of God could come true. How could we have innumerable descendants when we are this old and we have no kids? Surely, surely this promise is in serious jeopardy. Now, sometimes um, in our culture, faith is sort of described as this, uh, like, therapeutic uh, exercise, right? So faith, I mean, really, you Christians, we know that this God you believe in isn't actually real. I mean, we can't even see him. And so more, your faith really is more about making yourself feel good. It gives purpose to your life and shape to your passions and energy to your causes. And so as long as it stays that way, it's fine. But let's, let's just be clear. We know it's not real. This is more for you. That's not the faith of the Bible. 
This faith is realistic. Abraham does not deny his circumstances. He doesn't just say, if all, God will just bless me with more if I'm just more faithful. He looks at his body as good as dead, but even more sure than the deadness of his body is the promise of God. God has promised. And believe his word. Saving faith is realistic. Marker number two. Saving faith perseveres. Abram's faith here perseveres. Again, Romans chapter 4. Let's start verse 20. Paul says, No unbelief made Abram waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, is Paul saying that faith in God is one that never has any doubts? No moments of being unsure. I don't think so. I would argue here that Paul's not saying there's no ups and downs to the the journey of faith in Abram's life. Instead, Paul talks about, number one, growth. Verse 20, Abram grew strong. So faith is a journey of of hopeful growth. But not only that, but Paul looks to the end of Abram's life. And he says, fully and finally, at the end of the day, Abram's faith was not broken. It did not abandon. He did not abandon his faith. He's fully convinced at the end of the day in God's promise. His faith persevered. And this idea is picked up all over the New Testament as the work of God. God's work in the life of the Christian is to keep us, to keep our faith. In moments of temptation and trial, the Lord keeps us from making a shipwreck of our testimony for the gospel. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will surely bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The very end of the book of Jude, Jude 24, 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless. Or Romans chapter 8. God who has known us from eternity past, he's predestined us for adoption. He will call, he will justify he will glorify. Abram's faith perseveres because God keeps him. Our faith. The reason you will wake up a Christian tomorrow morning is not because of you. No, God keeps us. God maintains our faith. Faith in this God is the only way to be righteous. We saw that in Genesis 15, verse 6. This faith is counted as righteousness. You cannot earn it. You cannot have your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. When you stand before God on judgment day, the thing that will get you in and will give you righteousness is the work of Jesus. Faith. So we trust this God. We trust Him the way Abram did. We trust Him to be our treasure. And we trust him because he has guaranteed that promise with his own blood. So, moving to point number three, the promise guaranteed. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. So we've seen the promise of God given to Abraham. We've seen how Abram trusted God for that promise. 
And now point number three, we'll see how this promise is guaranteed. Now, Genesis 15, we're looking at verses 7 and 8 here. God says in verse 7 what he's going to do. Abram, I'm giving you this land to possess. Verse 8, Abram questions again. Verse 8, O Lord God, how do I know for sure that I'll possess this land, that I will get this promise? You ever been in this kind of situation? Where you believe God is leading somewhere, but the questions just keep rising. How can I know for sure? How can I be absolutely certain? That's what Abram is asking here. You've made these promises to me, but how can I be sure? How can I be certain? And so what happens next is God's response. Abram, the way that you can be certain, I will show you. Now, verses 9 through 11 here are really weird. Okay, really strange. Abram collects these animals. They're all three years old. Just random assortment of animals, it seems like. And then he cuts them all in half. Chops all these animals right in two. And what he does is he takes the two halves of the animals and he lines them up in this aisle format. I don't know if you do that at your home on a regular basis. Sounds really weird to me. So what's going on here? God is going to respond to Abram's request for confirmation. So he tells Abram, collect these animals. And then Abram just starts doing all this stuff, right? He cuts the animals in half. He starts lining them up. This is what's happening here. Um, This is a ceremony. This is a covenant ceremony. Right? A covenant, uh, sort of like a contract. Okay, and what's happening here is this ratification of a contract. So, what people in the ancient world do when they make contracts is they do this ceremony. Right? Okay, and how do we make contracts? We make contracts with our signature. Right? When you swipe your card at the store or when you make a really, really, really big purchase, you sign checks, you have to sign your name. And what you're doing when you sign your name is you're saying, I agree to these conditions. I now owe you X amount of dollars. And how do you know that I'll pay? Here's my signature. I remember, uh, you know, I got married a few years ago, and after you get married, there's this moment where uh, the officiant, he calls you over with your your witnesses, and there's this piece of paper you got to sign. Right? And the paper is your marriage license. And so you sign your name. What you're doing in signing your name is all the stuff you just said at the altar Your spouse who says, how can I know for sure you'll do those things for me? I will sign. Okay? Signatures. That's how we make contracts. But the ancient world, that's not how they do contracts. Okay? The way they do contracts is like this. You take an animal, you slay it, you cut it in half, you arrange it in this aisle, and then the two people who are agreeing to the contract, they would walk through the aisle together. And what they're saying as they do that is this. If I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. May I be cut off. May I be destroyed like these animals if I don't fulfill my end of this contract. That's the kind of ceremony that we got going on here. When you do this, you are bound. You are acting out the curse of the covenant. That if you disobey, that if you fail to keep your end of the deal... The curse that will fall on you will be your death. It will be this. You'll be destroyed. 
So Abram's told in verse 9, bring these animals. He knows what's going on. He knows this is a covenant ceremony. He's going to be making a contract. But that's where his knowledge ends. Abram has no idea what's happening next. In fact, nobody on the face of the earth could have guessed what's going to happen next. Okay, look down in verse 12. As the sun is going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They'll be exiles, servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they served. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So Abram falls into this deep darkness. And in the midst of the darkness, there is God. God speaks to Abram. He predicts what we now know as the story of the Exodus, right? Where the Israelites are sent into slavery in Egypt. They're there for 400 years. God brings them out with these great miracles. And then the story continues. This is where it gets, uh, if, I, if I start going off here, just leave me be, okay? Verse 17. 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Okay, now, the word here for smoking and the word here for fire, these are the same words used later at Mount Sinai. If you know the story of the Israelites, they, they go to this mountain, and this huge fire cloud descends on this mountain, and that cloud inside is God. So what's being said here is that God shows up, the smoking fire pot, this flaming torch, the presence of God. It's this severe, intense, heavy presence. And in verse 17, this smoking fire pot, this flaming torch, passes between these animals, walks down the aisle. That is the gospel, that God is the one who passes through these pieces. Right, so follow me here. When, when we try to live a life of faith in the promises of God, there's always two problems to that life of faith. Number one is what we see in this text. We so often come to God and we say, how can we know? How can I know for sure that what you said will actually come to pass? How can I be certain? How can I count on you and trust you? And you notice God's response here to that question. Because the way you can trust me, I'll put my life on the line. Right? This ceremony, this walking through the pieces, is a symbol that this person who walks through these pieces will say, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may I be destroyed. The way that you can know that God is faithful, that he is trustworthy, he's put his life on the line for it. He's walked through these pieces. Right? I've promised to bless you, Abram. I've promised to make you a blessing. I've promised to give you innumerable descendants. And if I don't come through, may I be destroyed. May I be cut off. May I be slain like these animals. And that's amazing, right? That God is this trustworthy. He's this faithful. But problem number two with our life of faith is not just God, but us. God, I will be the one to fail. I will be the one who won't hold up my end of the bargain. My end of the covenant will fail. 
surely God will get tired of me. I can't tell you how many times I've sat praying, thinking like this again. Like I've done it again. Like surely this has got to be the last time that God can have patience for me. Yes, I'll believe that you will be my God, that you will bless me, but I will fail my end. And yet again, the answer is here in verse 17. Did you notice who walks through the pieces? Abraham never walks. He's asleep. The only one who walks through these pieces and makes this covenant is God. Do you know what that means? God says, yes, if I don't hold my end of the bargain, may I be destroyed. But also, if you don't hold your end of the bargain, I'll still take the punishment. God puts his own life on the line, not only for his possible failure, which is never going to happen, but also for our sure failure. This is the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is not a cooperative effort. It's not a partnership. God goes through alone. He commits his own life. I'll take the curse of the covenant on myself for both of us. So if and when you fail to uphold your end of the deal, may I be cut off. And of course, we know from later on in our Bibles, that's exactly what happened. Mark chapter 15, darkness descends again. And again, in the middle of the darkness, there is God in the face of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. This is what Jesus is doing. Don't you see Jesus on the cross is taking the covenant curse for your and my disobedience. That while he upheld his end of the deal, we failed to uphold ours. And yet, in our place, Jesus is cut off. Jesus is slain. Jesus is destroyed for our disobedience. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the gospel. That in our place, as covenant disobedient sinners, God himself stands and bears our own punishment that we have deserved. He walks through the pieces alone. Now, to apply this here briefly, we mentioned earlier that part of this life of believing in God's promises is the, the fact that so many of us so often express massive doubts in the face of these promises. That faith can often be hard to come by in these moments. So what do we do in the moments when we are experiencing doubt in God's promises? Let me just put this home a little bit further, right? Uh, we've been praying at Redeemer for your uh, next pastor. Now, as that process goes on and on and on, surely going slower than maybe, maybe you thought it would, it's not abnormal, it's not crazy for doubts to begin to creep in. So what do we do 
when we begin to doubt the goodness and the promise of God? Well, number one, we go to God. We call out to God. And there's a whole facet of ways to do this. Obviously, in prayer, bring these things as you pray. Bring these things to God. It's, it's always struck me as foolish in myself that, that when I'm praying, I'm, I'm like almost like not saying the things out loud that I really think as if God doesn't already know them. When you worry and you express doubt, it's not like you're hiding those things from God because you don't say them out loud. So you might as well bring them to, to God in your prayers. Call out to God. Not only this, but just as a, as a comfort in this moment, Romans chapter 8 tells us that when we were saved by Jesus, we were given God's Spirit. That God's Spirit lives in us, and what the Spirit of God does in us is it bears witness to us that we are the children of God. And that when we cry to God, we're crying to our Father. So for those of you who are parents in the room, what do you do when your child comes to you and they're doubting your protection or your goodness to them? Do you like scream at them for, for not believing in you? No, you're gentle, you're loving, you reassure them. And I remember um, when I was young, I was really afraid of uh, water, like jumping in the swimming pool. And um, I remember one time I'm standing on the edge of the pool. I've got like, you know, floaties everywhere. And I'm like sitting here ready to go. And, and my dad is there waiting for me in the pool. And he's got his arms out and he's saying, just got to jump. And I'm going, no, 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 no. This is way too scary. You're going you're gonna to drown and then I'm going to drown and it's all going to be over. Right? In that moment, my dad doesn't go, dude, you're an idiot. Right? He just looks at me and he says, trust me. I'll catch you. Just trust me. So what Romans 8 tells us with this spirit bearing witness to our spirit is when we cry to God in our doubts, we're crying to the one who loves us as our father. He beckons and calls us, trust me. I will be good on my promise, trust me. So call out to God. Number two, in the moments of doubt, remind yourself of God's faithfulness. Remind yourself of God's faithfulness. This is a, a hugely repeated command in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. They are to have the law and the stories of God written everywhere to remind them that as they go out into the world and there are different narratives and different stories calling for their identity, their true identity, their true story is found here. So when you leave this room and you go out into your workplaces, into your families, into your friendships, there are other stories and other narratives calling for you. And some of those stories call you to doubt the goodness and the sovereignty of this God. So the work of the Christian is to remind ourselves frequently of what God has done. Remind ourselves of his faithfulness. So um, one way you can do this, uh, my, my, my best friend does this. He's got a little three-by-five card. And on that three-by-five card, he has written his summary of the gospel. It's like a few sentences of the gospel. And he thumbtacked it to uh, his door of his room. And so every day, he, he lives with me. I hear him. I hear the door open. And then I hear about ten seconds of just nothing. He's reading to himself this card every morning to say, this is true. God is good. How do I know? 
He gave his life for you. Another way to do this is the Lord's Supper. When you take communion, when you, when you hold this, this piece of bread and this juice, or whatever you use here, what you're telling yourself is, this is the way that I know God is for me. This is the way that I know he's trustworthy. This body, this blood shed for me. And last thing, reminding yourself of God's faithfulness, you should build uh, altars for remembrance, right? Build altars. All throughout the Old Testament, people build altars all the time. The way they build altars is a story will happen. This great thing will happen, and they'll build this huge pile of rocks, and this pile of rocks is supposed to remind us of this story that just happened. So there's one in Genesis 32. Jacob wrestles with God. And when he, his name is changed, and it's this huge, big story, and he builds this altar. Whenever he sees this altar, he's reminded of what happened. So in your own life, in your own life, think of the moments where God has proven himself faithful to you. When he has proven himself trustworthy. Build altars out of those moments. Make memories of them. Ones that stick out that when you are in the throes of doubt, you can look back and say, if that altar is true, God is good. And he will keep his promises. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the story of the gospel. That even as Abraham gives us this great example of faith, even more sure and more great is your demonstration of your love to us that in the midst of our rebellion, you have proven yourself faithful to your promises. We are so grateful for that. And we pray, Father, in the days to come that you would give us hearts that trust you. Trust you to be good to us, to be true to your promises, to be the one who always is faithful. Help us trust you, Father. When we are in the midst of doubt, we pray that we would enact some of these principles, that you give us quick memories of your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Be with us now. We pray this through Christ. Amen.